0: We are here today at another episode of The Intersection at the intersection of technology and culture, art and business, however you want to describe it. Today, I'm here with Sonia Nagar. She's a venture capitalist at the Prisker Group, where, like all of the best VCs I know, she has been a founder herself. She has a background in mechanical engineering and she's a so- self taught programmer where her first job out of college was at General Motors in the advanced engineering group. She went to Harvard for her MBA and worked at Amazon as a product manager. Wow. What a track record. <laughs> and, and afterwards, it's pronounced picky, right?
1: Picky, yeah.
0: And picky, like a personalization mobile shopping tool that yep. helped you like a, ca- a catalog yeah, for your iPad. Yeah, it was like a
1: shoppable magazine It's a good way to think about it. Back in 2011, 12, when the iPad App Store is brand, brand new.
0: There you go. And uh, I met Sonia thanks to Claude's fireside chat. Shout out to Claude. Like a cool, warm introduction. Thank you well, for joining you me here today. Thank you for having
1: me here today. I'm excited to be here.
0: I appreciate Sonia. And so one thing you talk about a lot is um, founder VC fit. Mm-hmm. That obviously beyond the transaction there should be an alignment between the humans that are doing the deal.
1: No, I mean, I definitely, when I'm advising first-time founders or just really early stage founders on how to go about fundraising, I talk a lot about making sure that you are thoughtful about who you pick to allow in as an investor. I think a lot of time people think, oh, I'm going to go and fundraise, and it's all about just getting the money and you just got to hit a dollar amount. But the reality is once you take somebody's money in as an investor, and especially if you take somebody's money in and they're your lead investor and they're taking a board seat, it's kind of like a marriage with no divorce because you can't get them off your cap table or out of your life without like a pretty messy process. And sometimes it's impossible. So, um, so I, I advise people to spend time getting to know investors before they go out and fundraise. I think that helps them not only evaluate who they're a good fit with um, and who they think can add the most value to them as they're building, um, but it also helps the investor get to know the founder as well.
0: Speaking of founder VC fit, you've said startups often optimize for valuation instead of the right partners. Do you want to talk a little bit?
1: Sometimes people do. I think now there's been a lot more published by founders about their experiences where... Enough founders, that I think, have been open about what it looks like if you go for the highest valuation and not for the best partner who can add value and build your business. Um, and so I think I'm seeing that less where there's always there's always some level of balance, like you don't want to take a term sheet and have an investor own of your company or 30% of your company. You know, like there's some... (laughs) Because they
0: were the right Right. (laughs) There's
1: some valuations that just made up. But I I would argue that the right investor is going to give you a valuation you can feel Mm. good about um, that they also feel good about. And that's the best way to start a partnership. And it's also the best way to set yourself up for the next round Um, sometimes. And what we're seeing from companies that raised in 2021 when everything was frothy and they raised at really high valuations and maybe they didn't have the numbers to justify the valuation they got. But the idea was, oh, we'll give you a bunch of cash and maybe you can grow into it. Now I think you're reading about founders who are shutting down. And if you know they'd raised at a different valuation, maybe they would have been able to raise that next round of funding at a flat valuation or even a slightly up, you know, slight up valuation. Um, but I think once you've raised a certain level of valuation, the expectations are different and higher mm. for what your business metrics need to be in order to get the next round done.
0: Have you seen that play out in ways where the expectations get mismatched with the founders or the VCs and what do you have any like best advice so that people up front when they make the deal, it doesn't get complicated later?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it is always good going into a deal. We try to be very clear and Pritzker Group were a little bit unique in that we're a slightly larger fund and we have a concentrated portfolio strategy. So anytime we invest, we want to write more checks behind that company and pretty big checks behind that company over the life of that company. And so we always go in and say, okay, for us to write that bigger check in that next round or to, you know, well, here's what the milestones are that we need to see you hit in 12 to 18 months. And then it's very clear. Here's, you know, here are the expectations going in. And then it's just lots of communication and feedback. And I'll be honest, often... Very rarely does a company exactly hit the metrics they need Mm. to hit, but I think it's also important to have the conversation with your investors up front um, and understand before you decide to partner with an investor, how do they handle those tough times? Because um, often, like it's pretty common, you're going to need an extension or a little bit more time to hit your metrics or to figure things out, and you want to know that your investors have a history or a strategy of like when they decide they want to invest behind you, they're going to support you in the good times and the bad times. And in the bad times, that may mean writing a supportive check to give you more time, um, even if you haven't hit all your numbers. So it's like, what happens in the best case scenario? You're getting a higher valuation and more money. In the worst case situation, you want to know that your investors are still going to support you to give you a little bit more time to figure things out. So more money, even if the valuation might be flat.
0: Hmm. What? That's so interesting. What? not to assume anything, but have you seen scenarios where founders are in hot water and they essentially kind of, I can't think of a better, lie because they...
1: Yeah, I mean, there are definitely bad actors, I think, in, in any environment, in any industry. And obviously there's some high profile cases of folks that have gotten in hot water with the law because, you know, they've... Been bad actors. Um, But you don't typically see it. And I think as an investor, it is imperative, and especially as a board member, you have a fiduciary responsibility to make sure that you're kind of double checking the work. So you're being provided generally with monthly financials so you can kind of understand the reality of a business. And with our founders, we're generally talking monthly about KPIs, key performance indicators as well. So we have a pretty good pulse on where things are going. It would be really hard. Um, for somebody to be dishonest, we also try to have multiple touch points with the company. So it's yes, the CEO is usually our primary contact, but we try to get to know the entire mm. executive team. So we've got multiple channels for information to flow. So if anybody suspects that something funny is going on, you know, we have, <laughs> you lots don't have of a challenges. single person
0: that. Yeah could potentially be whatever was going on with yeah. them emotionally you have other people to
1: yeah but we like i mean i think we can be most helpful when we know the entire executive right, right. team to figure out like how do we connect them with the right mentors or the right companies that have just done what they did that are just a step ahead of them so that they can learn faster and it's never a single founder you you know often you're investing behind a founder or founding team but the whole team is what will ultimately decide whether the company is successful. It's like for a startup to go right, you need a lot of things to go right. You need the products and technology to work. Very you need true. the sales function to work. You need the financials to like have good reporting and analytics. So you're making the right decisions. HR, you need hiring and culture to work. And so, so we really do try to be pretty hands-ons to avoid, you know, just to make sure the information is flowing and that's on us.
0: You'd say how, how many VC firms would you say are that hands-on? Because I think uh, there's a certain sentiment with VCs that they say in a maybe virtuous way, we're more hands-on than the other VCs. Or maybe that's just the VCs I know, and there's a lot of VCs that aren't hands-on. W- what is the hands-on yeah. dynamic with VCs? And-
1: yeah, I always think it's interesting. Now I've been on a bunch of boards, and so I've seen, at least in the boardroom, a lot of people say they're hands on. And then when you talk to founders or you see what they're actually doing, you know, if they're showing up unprepared for board meeting, I've been surprised at how many people are not actually hands on. And I think the best way for a founder to vet that is by talking to other founders that that investor or firm has invested in and figuring out what value did they actually add. You know, were they they said they had this great network. Did they make any introductions? Uh, they said they could help with all of these things when I asked them for help or they've been asked for help. Have they helped? So there are are practical ways. It's just like when we're going into an investment, we're um, often doing reference checks. Um, Founders should do the same thing on their investors.
0: Right. I feel like you have a really intelligent perspective on both ends of the reference checks, that you understand that for founders, they should reference other founders who've worked with partners that have invested into or could potentially invest into them. And on the VC side, you want to, check anybody who's worked with this founder in the past to know if they're the right person to invest in that's so interesting yeah i don't feel like not to not i don't feel like a lot of vcs do that or they they
1: should <laughs> i mean if you're saying that people If you think about hiring if you're going to hire somebody would you hire somebody without doing reference checks or background right, checks? right right okay? right okay you never would if you're in an operating role there's no reason it's like the people are so critical in a startup and so why wouldn't you do that there and then vice versa I think a lot of people know that it's the right thing to do, but it takes work. Mm. And so you got to, not everybody wants to put in
0: the work. True. Earlier, you mentioned KPIs. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe this is an ignorant opinion, but I've always felt like KPIs lacked some kind of substance. That if you're really focused on a specific metric, that there are other factors within the process of trying to make something happen that are not as easy to measure maybe this is in maybe this isn't being articulated very well but how do you balance kpis with like the the more qualitative aspects of founding something
1: yeah so i think the key thing is to pick the right kpis and so and have a uh, have a short list of true north there you know things that you're tracking and you got to track inputs so things like your cash position or your revenue. Those are outputs, those are not inputs. Inputs would be how many sales leads is your um, sales team bringing in per month? Or how many, you know, if you're in a marketplace business, how much new supply have you brought online in the last month? And so it's like, it's a little bit step ahead of revenue and some of the outputs. and i think the art is when you work with an experienced investor who's seen a bunch of businesses in your space they know what the right things are to track and they'll help right. guide you on like here are three or four really important things that you need to be tracking there's a lot of noise and you can get distracted trying to chase this metric or that metric but here's what matters and then the revenue will follow so that's my my again I that was think a good you, answer yeah if you've Either you can get that advice from other founders that are in your category on like what they've tracked, or you can talk to investors who've done a bunch of deals in your space. And even if they, you know, maybe you pitch them for investment and they pass, you could ask them, you know, I know you invested in such and such company that's very similar to mine. What metrics do they track at the board level?
0: To make a little tangent Mm and Vicky, you were very involved in this like consumer focused personalization tool. So, Is there anything these days that in in terms of like personalization when it comes to consumers or brands that are becoming more personalized that trends or stuff that you're looking at?
1: Yeah, I mean, right now, personalization has really become table stakes. Mm. It's like consumers expect to get an email that is relevant to them. Otherwise, they're just going to delete it. And same, you know, text message, the bar is even higher. It's got to be timely and relevant. Otherwise, people are going to unsubscribe. And so... The bar is really high, I think, for consumer expectations. So in 2011, what we were doing to try to make a more curated, personalized experience, I think now it's like table stakes for consumer brands. If you're trying to appeal and win over customers, you've got to stand for something very specific. And so I've definitely seen a proliferation of brands. It's like if you are uh, like in clothing and apparel, it's like they're very small, distinct brands that can speak to any aesthetic any body type, any right, you know, right. affinity group you may be uh, affiliated with, and so that's that's been interesting to me. See the fra- hyper fragmentation in consumer because mm. it makes me wonder, you know, what's the potential to build a mega brand if you if people expect such personalization, customization, authenticity. Um, it's one reason why we do less consumer products investing um, today at a Pritzker Group than we did. 10 years ago we were early Mm -hmm. in Dollar Shave Club on Honest Company and Casper yeah and I think at that point in time direct to consumer was new um, and it was really hard it was harder to start how long ago was that like 10 years yeah oh wow really 8 years yeah Hmm. so um, but times have changed and it's become so easy to build a brand that now everybody can build a brand and anyone can build a brand and so um, that's that's allowed for this super hyper fragmentation where People can find products that are very specific to their identity and who they are and the causes they want to support. Um, it just makes it harder to get everybody on board because it's like uh, marketing has to be so specific.
0: Hmm. Where do you think that's going? Like, what what kind of thing? I don't, what kind of thing would could you invest in that would be
1: that would get me back into the Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I think the strategy that a couple that I've been pitched a couple of times have not made a bet on yet is that you can build a next generation Procter and Gamble or like a L'Oreal, like a collection of brands. Um, I just haven't seen that yet. There's one, um, there's one company that did a really interesting pitch that has a couple really successful consumer products that I think has a shot at it, but um, they, but they're too later stage for us because we come in usually series a They're you know, well well beyond us
0: interesting hmm well hmm this has my mind running like everything's so specific and so niche but like you said is there a scenario where you can be proctor and gamble but for a million niches yeah you're like
1: yeah i don't know i mean i think people people are definitely trying um and for a while there was a big a lot of money that got poured into Amazon roll up plays where people were buying a bunch of Amazon brands and trying to, and you saw that strategy in a couple of other places as well. But I haven't, um, I don't know what brand today I would pick. I actually know what brand I would pick to potentially be that next gen platform. I just, it's going to be a long time before Mm. that gets proven out.
0: Speaking of long time, Mm -hmm. one thing you've talked about is the very long term cycle a VC that yeah. you have hundreds and hundreds of companies that you talk to and that pitch you, and you only invest in a handful, and then to see that result, it takes 10, ten years. years. Yeah. So, what is that experience like waiting 10 years to see the result of your initial bet?
1: Yeah. I mean, that's definitely the biggest change or adjustment for me when I switch from being an operator to being an investor. When you're an operator, you can measure your success every week. You have your metrics, your KPIs, you are tracking, and so every week I could say, we got the right number of downloads for the mobile app, or we had this much revenue come through, and it, you know you get a lot of affirmation. I think in venture capital, you just have to have more conviction sometimes that the bets that you are making are the right bets, and sometimes they will um, you'll get external validation and that they get marked up or they get acquired, but that can take years. So, but it's still, it's, it's a lot of fun um, because you get to be diversified. You get to see a bunch of different companies doing different things and you get to learn. And I think people are shortcuts and founders are some of the most passionate, interesting people. And so having them take you along with them on their, you know, teach you about a category, take you along with them on the journey. There'll be some things you bring to the table, a lot you learn from them. It's just, it's fascinating.
0: Hmm. What's, um... What's particularly fascinating to you about the journey of being with a founder over time? Cuz I'm sure sometimes it can feel personal, no?
1: Oh, it definitely like, does. I think venture capital is a little bit funny in that, you know, you kind of work all the time because you don't know where your next deal is going to come from. So it's like I'm sitting with you here today doing this podcast, maybe somebody is going to listen to it that happens to be a founder and a year from now they reach out to me and they say, "Hey, I heard you on this podcast and I want to figure out if we have founder VC fit, and so let's hang out and and maybe that company goes on to be Facebook. You don't know, and like you have all these crazy stories of serendipity doing its thing in venture capital. And so, you know, I'd say spend a third of my time doing top of funnel activities. That's kind of meeting with founders, helping founders out, and you've got to believe in the power of community and that doing good is gonna you pay it forward and it'll come back to you in some way, shape, or form, and you don't necessarily know how, and so you. You know, Mm. it's a but it's a beautiful thing. It's like I am now seven years in. There are founders that I worked with five or six years ago that are now on their second company coming back. Or there's definitely examples of founders where um, I was on the board and we brought them into other Pritzker portfolio companies to help out. And and so you seeing that long arc of like getting to work with great people and finding different ways to like bring your favorite people back into the into your orbit is a beautiful thing.
0: It's so interesting. It's a lot to take in. It's like you said you spend a third of your time basically doing things that may or may not have a return. Yeah. But just out of what you find is enthusiastic to you and interesting to you and...
1: Meeting people. Meeting people taking first. I mean, I consider if you take a first meeting with a founder who's super early. Maybe, you know, we invest at Series A, so we're not the family and friends round and we're not that first seed round either we're the next round and so sometimes people (laughs) will come and ask to meet with me and they just got an idea and it's like it could be three years before i'm gonna be the right investor but if it's a founder who is building something in a category that i'm interested in and they've done their research and they're like i know you've invested in these companies and this is why i think you'll be interested in what i'm doing I'll, I'll, i'll take those meetings not all of them but i take A handful of those meetings but again that's like a top of funnel activity where it could be years before that plays out and that founder remembers that I helped them in some way shape or form but
0: cool this is so cool yeah one thing I was really curious to ask you about that I heard in a separate podcast was how you guys essentially you do but essentially you don't have any LPs yes that Tony and JB fund pretty much all of your efforts and so what is it like having a responsibility to work smart and collaboratively with Tony and JB versus having a responsibility to a bunch of LPs where yeah. I've never been in that position with those relationships? Yeah, are.
1: well, I actually think it's really similar. So mm. JB is governor of Illinois, so he's not in the day-to-day at all. He's mm. he's doing that. And then Tony um, spends a lot of time with our private equity team, but we have pretty regular, um, you know, Connect chats with him. Um, and so it's kind of the same responsibility where mm. ultimately we're measured on our ability to make money um, and to build a great portfolio. And I think the nice thing is Pritzker Group is a fund that's been around for 30 years. is probably one of the oldest funds here in Chicago. And the track record is strong. And so there is a lot of trust that gets built when you've demonstrated that you can make good decisions and good financial decisions and also, you know, good investment
0: decisions. so Makes sense. Build trust
1: over time. Yeah, the same way you do with LPs and right, traditional funds. You're asking them to come in and invest and then they're going to evaluate you every, you know, periodically to say, do, you know, do they want to re-up? And so you have to build the same kind of trust and right, relationship.
0: Right, right. You've said Chicago, unlike New York or San Francisco and a lot of other places, has a unique advantage in its VC ecosystem where it's, it's easier to get to people.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think Chicago is still small compared to San Francisco for sure and New York for sure. And so if you want to, you know, if you wanted to talk to me, you came up to me at a fireside chat. You know, you fireside. can figure out a way to meet with people because there's, there's a lot of, I think people realize that we're still working to build up the ecosystem. And in order for Chicago to thrive and for us as investors to thrive and to attract talent to come here, we all still need to work together. And the folks that are further along in the journey need to give back to the folks that are just getting started. Otherwise it doesn't work.
0: Mm. And I think
1: the nice thing about venture capital and technology ecosystems in general is that like founders literally come from nothing and then become something. And I think founders remember how hard it is. And even if you're a second, third time founder, I've heard successful founders that have a billion dollar exits on their second company tell me that it's been just as hard to fundraise and just as hard to build because startups are hard. Startups are hard. I think some things become easier, like maybe raising your first round of funding is easier, but that second and third round can still be hard. And maybe Mm. hiring becomes a little bit easier because you know, you know, you have your first 10 hires, but then as you scale, you've still got to figure out all the things around culture and HR and people management and processes all over again. So, You know, I I think because of that, people bond more deeply. And I do think people want to pay it forward because they remember how hard it is and they recognize that ecosystems thrive, like all ships rise together. And so we need to make sure we have a high tide rising all boats by helping. And so I don't know. I think in some of the more successful larger ecosystems, there can be a little bit more probably snobbery or elitism, where people expect you to be able to find a warm introduction, you know, to be introduced by a certain person, otherwise they're not gonna take the meeting. I think people in Chicago are generally more more open. And they're definitely more collaborative too. I think because we have a lot more smaller funds, um, people are more likely to syndicate a deal, which just means that they're in on the coast, because the funds are so large, they need if it's a ten million dollar round that Investor is going to take 10 million because they need the whole round because they've got to deploy as much capital as they can in order to make their fund economics work. Whereas in Chicago, you've got smaller funds. People are more likely to phone a friend and say, hey, I'm doing this deal. There's some room. Do you want to co-lead it with me or Mm. be part of it? So.
0: So would you say conclusively that because Chicago's smaller in what's going on, there's more potential for us to rise the tide together? So maybe we're at a unique opportunity where there's like a lot of uh, collaborative recycling that can go on within yeah. the next couple Yeah, I mean, I'm an decades? optimist,
1: so that's definitely the optimistic way to look at things. If it, you know, the pessimistic way to look at things would be say, we're small, we don't have big funds here, and so it's harder for startups to get funded. We haven't had, you know, a mega exit like uh, uh, Facebook or Google, and so we don't have that kind of recycling of talent or the big pull to bring talent in, to train the talent, and then to like recycle the talent back into our ecosystem mm. with experience of what it looks like to operate a, at a world class tech company. And so, I think there are pros and cons. Um, I'm an optimist. So I'm an, you know, I'm gonna say the former. The optimist former. The says optimist we can says do that
0: in the next five, can, ten. Years.
1: Well, I think it's gonna take a long time. I mean, I think what we really need <laughs> are those um, mega exits. Like we need some mega companies, mega success stories to be those like anchored tenants, the same way that you have Microsoft and Amazon in Seattle. Um, And then really, it's like the Bay Area has done it best with so much density of the companies, the talent, the capital. That kind of creates the trifecta for helping startups succeed.
0: So would you agree, even though we live in such a remote international world at this point, that there's still a lot of importance in having a local density?
1: Yes, I mean I do think at the earliest stages for angel investors who are writing that very first check and for seed investors, often people prefer to invest locally. In the Bay Area, the um the an- analogy, the, the the thing that I've heard or the saying that I've heard is that some investors only want to invest a bike ride distance radius same from where they live, and while it sounds trite and kind of like well, why, why would you restrict that yourself that sense. way? It does make sense because if you think about it, and even for, um you know, for Pritzker Group, a third of our, we invest nationally, a third of our portfolio is Midwest. In the Midwest, we do have deep relationships with, we you know, the founders. So if you're looking to hire your first CMO, you know, CFO, we know the service provider, like we were able to help um, uniquely in some ways in the areas where we have some density. So we definitely, you know, New York is another ecosystem. we invested a bunch in and then LA and so those are kind of the three geographies like east, east
0: northeast mid, yeah and west coast and yeah
1: we kind of have good some good coverage um but it helps it helps to and then you can do more in-person things you know you can break bread have drinks so uh, there's a deeper level of relationship building that you can do in person and I know folks hate to go into the office now apparently, but I don't I, think so. I, I don't like think in person. So. Obviously we met in an in-person fireside chat. Right. If you had sent me a cold email, I think it'd be much Probably harder for me. Would know. Probably would not much, much harder up. but you say. came up to me in person and I was like, Oh, okay. It seems like a reasonable ask. And you took all the t- you know, the time to get out to that fireside chat. I appreciate that it's a little bit harder and because it's harder it it's people appreciate game. the effort.
0: I told Claude Claude has facilitated a lot of people I've brought on this podcast, honestly, even if they were remote, like have you, you know, Nate Jones, He's like a former partner in Andreessen Horowitz for yeah. eight years. And I met him at yeah. the Tech Chicago Week and all type of people I've had on the podcast. Yeah, yeah. So you're right there. Even if it's remote or in person, there's so much value in actually meeting someone. Yes. Where, you know, both of them have put in a mm-hmm. certain amount of access to get yeah. into the same space. A little bit of
1: effort goes a long way.
0: One thing um, during the fireside, speaking of the fireside, is you said if you weren't in business in the way that you are, that you'd open up a coffee shop. Yeah. And not to uh, throw the audience under the bus, but it felt like some of the people were a bit, little bit thrown off by this response that they were like a coffee shop. Yeah, I know <laughs>
1: people don't understand. I mean, I think the the comment I'm making is more, I think everybody thinks the grass is greener on the other side. And I probably fall into that bucket where I'm like, you know, i built software companies and now I invest in software and technology companies, but there's something appealing about like a brick and mortar, a business, you know? So, and I love, coffee and tea you got to do what you love so so yeah so I've always thought that would be like a fun retirement gig I'm far from that but
0: do you feel like people in the broader world of business and entrepreneurship could be a little bit more open-minded to the nature of what fulfillment is like, in the sense that you yeah. were like, I could open up a coffee shop. And they are yeah. like, a coffee shop? Yeah. I don't think you can be successful in a coffee shop. Yeah, I mean, but somebody like,
1: started Pete's Coffee. Somebody founded Starbucks. Like, don't get me wrong. I mean, you can build an empire doing many things. And I think that's one thing I've come to appreciate being in Chicago, where not everybody has become successful in tech. Some people have made a lot of money doing other traditional things. Um, and so I think in the tech bubble. If you only talk to founders and tech people, it can be give you a warped view of the world and how to be happy. And so I like having outside perspectives and try to spend a reasonable amount of time getting exposure to folks who are not in the tech echo chamber because I think it's healthy. And ultimately, um, because I do a fair amount of consumer investing, it's important to understand what real people are doing. And like the people in urban city centers and in um, these tech echo chambers are not normal people, so it's like you know. For me to have a pulse on what is going to work in a business, I need to not the outside always. of that.
0: Yes. <laughs> I need to it's have a diverse useful. set of perspectives,
1: and and I think every often I'll get pulled in there by the founders that I talk with. If somebody's starting a company and they are selling in the construction equipment industry or ag equipment industry. I'm talking to farmers and, you know, like I I try to, we do a lot of customer interviews to gain a perspective, which is one of the things I love about my job because you get get to be a little bit of like a cultural anthropologist and just understand how other people view the world and what's important to them and how they think about whether it's buying decisions, like, you know, I find it fascinating.
0: Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. But I'm literally making a private agency around what you just described just now because I feel like Teams are not very good at that. I happen yeah. to be really, really good at that. Yeah. Anyway, um, you're right. One thing you've talked about before is um when I listened to you during the fireside chat, you seem to have a unique kind of mindset on your family. Maybe not unique, but you spoke about it in a way that was endearing to me. So, like, how does Sonia feel about being a mom and a family member?
1: Yeah. I mean, I love it. I have three kids, six, four, and two, and a little dog. We live in the city. And I mean, it's just so much fun. I think you learn a lot from seeing your kids learn. And so that's fascinating to me. Like it's talk about cultural anthropology and just understanding
0: how people think
1: <laughs> and why they do certain things. And like, these are the consumers of the future. And, and I get to experience different things through them too. Like they go through school and activities and or reading books, like rereading books that yeah, I read an as a kid. You know, it's like a fun, it's like a fun, it's totally fun. It's very rewarding. And and I think it makes me better at my job.
0: I agree 2,000%. I'm sure it makes you better at your job because you have no choice but to be an anthropologist. Yeah.
1: You got to understand why people do what they do and try to help them be good humans. And so you've got to, yeah, you gotta let, you got to love people. And I like people. I think that's probably like. I think there's a bunch, bunch of different ways to be good in venture capital, um, but there's no doubt that you do have to build relationships with people, the founders you invest in, other investors you want to invest with, uh, and I like people, so it's a good fit. I'm very happy in my where I've landed.
0: That's a good takeaway. Before we close this off, I wish, or I hope, that investors like people because that's yeah. what they're investing in.
1: Yeah. <laughs> You hope,
0: yes. <laughs> um, thank you so much for joining me on this podcast today, Sonia. And if there's anything else you'd like to plug, anything related to your work, other people that you're enthusiastic about around the city, or anything in the world that you want to give a voice to right now, you have the floor to do that otherwise.
1: Well, I mean, I don't know if I have any asks or but I'm, i'll just say if you're a founder and if i can be helpful don't be shy about pinging me we invest in series a startups marketplaces and vertical SaaS. so if you're in that category let me know
0: what about to the more um creative and artist like people who are watching this who may see vc as something a little bit alien or foreign to them what type of things do uh, words of wisdom, do you feel I could say that we're all a little bit more closer than we assume?
1: Yeah. No, I mean, I think as an artist, you're making bets and trying to understand where culture is going and right. kind of trying to, and I'm not saying, I know some artists might poo-poo the external validation, but if you're trying no, to make a life as a living as one an artist, who knows what's next yeah, up. you wanna know what's next. And so that's a very similar concept as what we do in venture capital. We just, you know, take a more, we're less gut and a little bit more data. As you get later stage, you're looking at a lot more data. But at the earliest stages, like the pre-seed and seed investors, that's a lot more gut and people and understanding. Um, and so, you know, we're not as far as you may think.
0: Absolutely. I try to. I actually try to give this example to people all the time, that there is a um, social capital that people get out of knowing that so-and-so was the next person to be famous yeah or two there that's a very real thing mm-hmm. so people have no idea what vc is but when i tell them that vc is the equivalent to that yeah they suddenly understand it Just
1: trying to pick which artist so, is going to be right next next it's
0: the same thing same thing well thank you so much sonia i really appreciate it and um yeah this was awesome
1: thank you for having me thank
0: you